This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Dear radio listeners, among all the stories recorded in Scripture, there is hardly one so dramatic as the story of Joseph. It's a story of twists and turns, of ups and downs, something like riding a roller coaster. I remember as a child loving this story and reading it over and over, and perhaps Because of our familiarity with the story, we as adults don't catch the raw emotion and the drastic changes of this story. The experience of each person in the story is a kind of a roller coaster. That's true for Joseph as he goes from favored son to Egyptian slave to property manager to federal prisoner to prime minister. What is God doing and where is God leading? And that's also true for Jacob, the patriarch who has the promise of God, that I will be with thee whithersoever thou goest. But when he looks at his life, it seems that the opposite is true. And so he cries out, all these things are against me. And this is true also for Joseph's brothers, guilty of selling their younger brother to slavery and hiding the sin for more than 20 years. They're suddenly faced with their guilt in Egypt when An Egyptian ruler treats them harshly, accuses them of being spies, and keeps one of them in prison. You remember that back in chapter 42, verse 21, as Joseph the ruler imposed these things on them, they looked at one another and said, We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. For twenty years... This had been their secret, and they had been silent about it. But here it was, right below the surface, plaguing their consciences. They feel the shame and the guilt. They're on edge. And that comes out as they leave to return home and find the money they had used to purchase the grain still in their sacks. Now, fearful they'll be accused of theft, they return to Egypt a second time with extra money in their hands, a gift for the ruler of nuts and spices, and they have their brother Benjamin along to verify to the ruler that they are not spies. In the passage we look at today from Genesis 43 verse 15 through chapter 44 verse 14, we will look at the second appearance of these brothers before Joseph. In it, their roller coaster ride continues and it's not all fun. There are moments of joy and moments of fear. They're treated to a royal feast with the ruler, and it seems that God is working things out for their safe return to Canaan with both Benjamin and Simeon. And then there's the silver cup incident and the arrest of Benjamin. And we know that the one operating the roller coaster is Joseph. And we might ask, why does he do this to them? Is he just teasing them? Is he having fun or being vindictive? I I remember as a child being quite gleeful as the brothers stood in their misery before Joseph, not knowing what was going on. The bad guys were getting beat by the good guy. Is that what's going on? 
And the answer is no. To understand the story, we have to go deeper. What Joseph wants is to see the repentance of his brothers. And Joseph's goal is the full reconciliation and salvation of his family, the people of God. Spiritually, Joseph has something that he wants his brothers to share. Joseph enjoys his own salvation and Joseph is working here to bring his brothers into that same experience through repentance. On their first visit, they acknowledge their guilt before him. And remember, they didn't know that he could understand what they were saying. And now Joseph wants to see that their hearts are sorry. He wants to see that their character and not just their behavior has changed. And that's what's going on in the passage that we look at today. In love, Joseph puts his brothers to the test. We could call it loving discipline. And the brothers experience it, not as Joseph working on their consciences, but God working on them. Judah says in chapter 44, verse 16, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. There's something for us to learn from that too. That this is the way that we should take all the troubles of life, as from God's hand. This is the way Joseph always viewed his troubles and his life. He lived before the face of God. That's what Jacob has had to learn to do in the troubles of his life. And this is what the brothers must learn to do here too, to see that God's hand is on them. They realize that you cannot hide your sins from God. And so, first, we have in the second half of chapter 43, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, Joseph treating his brothers to a royal feast. When Joseph sees that his brothers have returned to buy corn and have brought Benjamin with them, rather than greeting them and talking to them in the marketplace in public, he tells his steward to invite them to a feast at his home. Joseph does this to show them that he is not against them and that his goal is not to destroy them. The feast is set up in such a way that they experience the mercy of the ruler and see that the hand of God is with them. Joseph uses the feast to put them at ease. At first, however, the eleven brothers are not at all thrilled to be invited to this feast. On the contrary, they are quite shocked. There are three things here that shock them. The first is the very fact that they are invited to the feast. Why would the ruler of Egypt want us to eat with him? No one else who is here to buy grain gets invited to his home. And this makes them afraid and suspicious and defensive. In Genesis 43 verse 18 we read, and the men were afraid because they were brought to J Joseph's house. And they said, Because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. The ruler thinks we have stolen the money. He's going to capture us and make slaves of all of us. There's nothing good that can come of going to his house to eat. And they get very defensive. In verses 19 through 22, we read that before they even enter the house to eat, they stand at the door and give a long explanation to Joseph's steward, explaining that they did not take the silver and that they have brought it back with them, as well as more silver to buy more grain. The reason that they're so nervous is their guilt. This is what guilt will do. It will not let you rest. 
And so first, the invite itself is a shock to them. And then second, the response of the steward shocks them even more. Joseph Steward was an interesting fellow. He held the same position in relation to Joseph that Joseph had held earlier in relation to Potiphar. He was in charge of everything in Joseph's house so that Joseph did not have to be concerned about anything that he had or anything that went on. It's obvious that this man knew how Joseph his master thought and that he was in on the plan Joseph had for his brothers. Joseph would have handpicked him and it seems from his responses that through Joseph's influence he may well have been a believer himself. But the brothers have no idea of this. And how startling it must have been to them then when in response to their fear, this Egyptian steward says, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. This whole reply rings with recognition of who these brothers are, of who their God is, and even of the covenant promises that Jehovah has made to their families. This is the way a Hebrew would speak. First, this Egyptian steward greets them with the Hebrew greeting. Shalom, peace to you. Don't be afraid. He wants to put them at ease. There's no accusations of theft and no accusations of being spies. And then he says, Your God and the God of your father, that is, the covenant God, the God who made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and now to you. This God is being faithful to you. He has given you treasure. Not silver, but treasure in your sacks. I received your payment. Now, the only way the brothers could receive these words is as a rebuke, another smiting of their conscience. Here they are in a foreign land among heathen people, and they're not trusting in their God. And a man who to them would have been an unbeliever reminds them of who they are and of the faithfulness of their covenant God. Don't be afraid, he says. Don't you believe and trust in the God of heaven and earth? Isn't he the covenant faithful God who's made promises to your families? Have you ever had something like that before? An unbeliever, maybe a neighbor or someone you work with, someone who has heard your testimony about your God? And this person sees that you're anxious or angry, or maybe he hears you sin with your words, and he says, what about your faith? Don't you believe in a sovereign God? Isn't he in control of everything in your life? Doesn't he love you? Or maybe he says this, haven't you rebuked me for speaking like that in the past? And your conscience is smitten. You have opened your mouth and defamed the name of God and spoiled your testimony. Sometimes our children will pull us up like this too. What a reproof the words of this Egyptian were to these men. Where did he learn about their God and the promise in their generations? How did he know to talk like this? And then the third thing that shocks them is their seating arrangement. They are seated before the ruler from the oldest to the youngest, and they look at one another in astonishment. Is this a coincidence? How could he know there's something going on and it troubles their conscience? But at the same time, their host is so gracious. The clock strikes noon and Joseph is home for lunch. 
Nervously they present him with their gift, and they bow themselves down to the ground before him. But there's no accusation from him about them being spies or thieves. Instead, Simeon is restored to them. In a kind, friendly way, he asks them about their aged father and how their father is coping with the famine. And they answer in verse 28, Thy servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bow to him again. And then there's a sumptuous feast. Eleven men who have been suffering through a famine are treated to an abundance of food. The meal is extravagant. The ruler is friendly and generous. And soon all their fears are forgotten. The wine comes out. They drink and are merry. This ruler is not such a harsh man after all. There's grace in his behavior. And you see here that Joseph is not heartless. For a second time, this time after seeing his full brother Benjamin and saying to him, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And after hearing about his father, Joseph is overcome with emotion and he has to go into another room to cry and to dry his tears and to wash his face. Now maybe at this juncture in the story you ask, why doesn't he just tell them now who he is? Why why doesn't he just say, I'm Joseph, God has brought you to me. Now go get our father Jacob and come here to live in Egypt where there's food. Why doesn't he do this? The answer is that Joseph has one more test. These brothers feel their guilt, but has their heart changed? Given the circumstances, would they commit the same wicked deed again that they have committed in the past? And so what Joseph does is he reconstructs the setting of 20 years earlier when he was the hated and sold brother. Only this time, Benjamin will be the brother that they're tempted to get rid of for their own well-being. Joseph is going to force them to make a choice between themselves and Benjamin. And he doesn't do this out of spite. He's ready to extend forgiveness. But for reconciliation, there needs to be a change of heart and behavior. And so gently and lovingly, Joseph is leading them to that point. There's no accusation. He's simply letting God work on their consciences and in their lives. And so this is what he does. And it's masterful. And again, the steward handles the whole situation with amazing expertise. First, at the feast, he spoils Benjamin by giving him a portion five times the size of his brothers. He didn't do that for Benjamin's sake. Benjamin didn't need five meals worth of food at once. No, he did this for the brothers to see. He did this to separate Benjamin from the others as the special, the spoiled, and the loved, and the favored brother. Joseph knew that this was still going on back at home that it's been going on for 20 years. That's why Benjamin didn't come to Egypt the first time. And Joseph wants to know, how are the brothers responding to it now? How is Benjamin being treated by them? Is it the same hatred and envy that led them to get rid of him so that they could be happy? Joseph wants to know what's going on in their hearts. They had to notice that Benjamin was given five times the amount that they received. You can see them all looking down to the end of the table where Benjamin is. But how will they respond? Will this bring jealousy and envy between them and their brother? 
And that's the purpose also of the silver cup in Benjamin's bag, to discover what's going on in their hearts. First, Joseph sets Benjamin apart as a spoiled one, and then he forces his brothers to make a choice between the spoiled one and themselves. He's going to give them an opportunity to turn on and to get rid of Benjamin just as they did him. And so next morning, the brothers head out on the road, happy and relieved. Things couldn't have gone better in Egypt. They have Benjamin with them, they have Simeon, they have food for their families, and they were treated to the best of Egypt. All the suspicion about their being spies and thieves is gone. What a relief. But they're not long gone, and Joseph sends his steward after them with careful instructions. He needs to arrest Benjamin and bring him back to Egypt and give the brothers the opportunity to go on home without their youngest brother. More than 20 years earlier, they had said of Joseph, We will not have this dreamer rule over us, and so we're going to get rid of him. Now, how will they respond? This will show whether their hearts are changed. When the steward catches up to them, he repeats exactly what Joseph told him to say in verse 4. Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? Why have ye stolen my master's silver cup? The brothers are offended at the accusation. A false accusation is always difficult to take. And they become extremely defensive and they reply in this vein, That's impossible. We would never do something like that. We were bringing money back, so why would we steal? And there's a lesson right there for us in repentance. Too often we reply to accusations and to the accusations of the Word of God concerning our sin exactly this way. We get defensive. We think we're above certain sins. We should never think that way. Was this sin really below these men? Hadn't they sold their brother as a slave for a few pieces of silver and stolen more than 20 years of his life from him? Why is this such an absurd accusation. But they're indignant. Far be it from us, God forbid, that we should do such a thing, and they make a rash vow. With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. Now that's extreme, and the steward recognizes it, so he changes the terms of their vow. He says, He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. And so, hastily, we're told, they each took down their sack and opened it to prove their innocence. And methodically, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, the steward searches their sacks. And then as he comes to the last one, as they were collectively breathing a sigh of relief, the silver cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Here's the moment of truth, the test. Will they go home and say to their father, Benjamin stole the silver cup. He messed it up, and so now he's a slave in Egypt. Will they wash their hands of their spoiled brother? How do they respond? The Bible records no words here, only actions, because their actions speak louder than their words. They tore their clothes, and to a man they turned back to Egypt to face the ruler. And coming before Joseph, they fell before him on the ground. What do you have here? You have family love and solidarity. And that means that these brothers have repented. Their hearts are changed. Not only do they want, want now what's easiest for themselves, 
but they don't want their brother to be a slave in Egypt, and they don't want their father to be hurt and to die of grief. As Judah will go on to explain, and we'll look at this in the next message, they are ready to give up themselves and their own life and happiness for the sake of others. Guilt has brought repentance, which is not only a change in conduct, but a change of heart. Now we're going to stop in the story right here, but I just want to close with a couple of comments regarding true repentance and conversion. The first is this, that true conversion is repentance. Conversion is not simply saying, I believe in Jesus. Conversion is not simply identifying a moment when you feel Jesus came into your heart. Conversion is not simply identifying yourself with a group of people or a church that calls itself Christian. Nor is conversion simply being delivered from one or several bad sins of your past. No, conversion, true conversion, is heartfelt repentance over sin and a turning and forsaking of sin to follow Christ in love. That conversion goes deep because God's word goes deep. The truly converted does not say, Far be it from me to sin. Don't call me a sinner. I find that offensive. No, the truly converted cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The truly converted says with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. The truly converted understand the depths of sin and hatred and envy and lust and anger and bitterness that are resident in my own soul. God's Word exposes those things to me. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, if I'm truly converted, I see my need of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, and I trust in Him and not myself or my worth or what I do. I am saved by grace alone. And true conversion also means a change of heart and life. The question is not, When was I converted? Or do I go to church? But the question is, am I living in daily repentance over sin? And am I fighting against sin? And am I holy as God is holy? True Christians don't go on in sin. They hate sin because God hates sin. And like Joseph and his brothers now, they will give up their all to serve others in love and to serve their Savior in love. The true Christian says, I am not my own, and I am not here for me, but I belong to the Lord. His I am, and Him I serve. And finally, when that's our perspective on conversion, then we're not looking for decisions in others. We're not waiting for that moment when our kids will accept the Lord into their hearts. No, we're trusting that God will work in their hearts, and we're teaching them heart change and heart sorrow. And we're looking for the fruits of the Spirit in their lives. This is how the gospel works. It's not simply a message of forgiveness or accepting Jesus into your life. But it's a powerful message that brings change to people's lives. Joseph understood that. And that's where he wanted to lead his brothers. May God so work in us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for hearts that know their sinfulness, for mouths that are ready to confess guilt, and for lives that are transformed by the power of the gospel. And in this way, Lord, give us peace and joy. For Jesus' sake we pray.
Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.